Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sabbath School Study Hour being held right here in the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church. My name is Pastor Sean Brumman and I have the privilege of hosting our program and study here together. I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you brought your uh, quarterly if you have a copy. Uh, we're going to be looking at both of those. Of course, the most important of those being the Bible. Uh, we are continuing to make our way through uh, this uh, book called the Book of Psalms, uh, both the uh, title of the book in the Bible as well as the title of our quarterly study. Friends, we're in the home stretch now. We're in uh, lesson number seven, and uh, so we are just over halfway. So go ahead and grab that if you have a copy. Uh, another thing that I'd like to make, uh, take advantage of right now, and that is to give you our free gift offer. Now, if you happen to live in the United States or Canada, we can send, send this out to you, a hard copy in the mail. All you have to do is dial the number 1-866-788-3966. Again, that's 1-866-788-3966 or 866-STUDY-MORE. When you call in, just simply ask for offer number 189, and uh, the title of it is Heaven Is It For Real? If you're in the United States and you have a cell phone and tech service, you want to get a free digital download onto your phone to read instead, all you have to do is text the code 40, sorry, the code is SH033, and you want to dial that to the number 40544. And uh, so go ahead and take advantage of that. If you're outside the United States, you still want a digital copy, that's available anywhere you can get internet access. All you have to do is go to the website study.aftv.org slash sh033. We'll be happy to get that out to you. All right, friends, so this week we have looked at six Psalms. And uh, if you went ahead and read those ahead of time, of course, we always are just a little bit ahead of the game when we do that. Nevertheless, we're going to look at two of those psalms in more detail here today, and then also some of the highlights of the other four that were also included in this week's lesson study. Now, as it turns out, the six psalms that we're looking at, at least five of them, have one very common, powerful theme, and it's one of my favorite subjects that we can find, and that is concerning God's mercy. I don't know about you, but every day I thank God for His mercy towards me because I need it, and I have a feeling that you do too as well. So let's start by looking at some of the highlights of the first song that we're going to look at here today, and it's found in Sunday's lesson, which is uh, Psalm 136. So that's Psalm 136. I think we have it. There we go. And I want to invite you to come with me. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it. If it's a paper copy, if it's a digital copy, go ahead and start that up. And, uh, and we'll find ourselves reading here together. So Psalm 136. And we're going to find there a very prominent, very obvious pattern here. And this pattern is going to remind us as we read through it, 
that indeed the Psalms were not like the other chapters and other parts of the books of the Bible in the fact that this was an actual composition. It was a musical composition. It was composed musically as well as with its lyrics and, uh, and God was inspiring these particular Psalms in a prophetic manner at the same time. So just a reminder on that. And again, as we read through it, we'll find a very obvious pattern here in this composition. Verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Many of us Christians, you know, will come to each other and say, God is good. And you say all the time. You say all the time, God is good. Uh, what are we doing? We're confirming what the Bible says and what I trust and hope is your experience with God as well. As you walk with Him by grace and with His mercy, you can call Him good. For His mercy endures forever. And so there's that common theme again in the Psalms we're looking at today. His mercy. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of, th oh, give thanks to the God of gods for his mercy endures forever. There's that favorite word again. Verse 3 again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords for his mercy endures forever. Verse 4 it says, To him who alone does great wonders for his mercy endures forever. To him who has wisdom, may, who, to him who by, who by wisdom made the heavens for his mercy endures for heaven, uh, forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, and for those of you who aren't reading along with me, you can guess what's next, don't you? For his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. To the sun to rule the day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. And friends, if we were to go on and read every single verse right through the end of this particular psalm, we would see that there is one statement concerning God's interaction with God or His people or with Israel that demonstrates that mercy. And then it's confirmed over and over and over again. In fact, 26 times it's confirmed in this particular psalm that His mercy endures forever. And uh, so this is, again, a very unique style and again, it reveals that this was a composition that was intended to be sung. Another thing that we want to pick up, as the quarterly study points out for us as well, is found in verse 25. And uh, so go ahead and go down there with me. It says, Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. It reminds me of the statement Jesus says, God loves both the sinners and the righteous, he says. He, he rains his rain upon the sinner and the righteous. He so, shines his sun upon the, the, the sinner as well as the righteous. God loves all human beings and he loves them unconditionally. We're going to talk about this later. He doesn't save us unconditionally, but he loves each and every one of us equally and unconditionally. And, uh, and we're seeing that again in verse 25 where God expands beyond the people in the nation of Israel and he says, God is the one who gives food to all flesh. Why? Because he mercy, his mercy endures forever. And we're going to talk about why both the righteous and the sinner don't deserve all the food and the pleasures and the things that we achieve and experience in this life on the good side of life. But nevertheless, God's mercy is there and he gives it to you and me. And uh, so I'm just so, so grateful for that each and every single day. And of course, the rest of the Bible verifies this statement in verse 25 in a hundred different ways. Uh, one of the prime examples found in the Gospel of John chapter 3 in verse 16. Uh, of course, many of you know it by memory, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so, of course, this is an example of a hundred different places in the Bible um, where God reveals uh, that he is an international God and his mercy is available to each and every human being. Always has, always wills. Now, friends, one of the things that uh, God delights in is giving mercy to you and I. So not only does God offer mercy, but he offers it readily. And I think that's important for us to be able to pick up on this important topic is that uh, God is a God that delights in showing us mercy. Some of you may recall that verse, and I've read it in the past in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. It says, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. And, uh, and so God is a God that pardons the iniquity of those who fear and worship him, those who truly believe and devote themselves to him. And, uh, and he delights in offering that mercy. And uh, so this is the, the opposite of, of grudgingly offering his mercy to you and me. No, the Bible says that God finds pleasure. That's delight. Something that you delight in is something that brings you pleasure. And God finds pleasure. He delights in offering mercy to you and I. And, uh, and so if you've been questioning whether or not God is a God that is able to extend mercy to you, I pray that this is already starting to confirm uh, that indeed he delights in offering it to you if you only ask for it. And, uh, and we're going to find this in living color as we also look at uh, a prime example in a psalm of David in just a moment. And, uh, and so God wants to extend that same mercy uh, uh, to all of us. And, uh, and we find that in the teachings of Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, we find that Jesus tells us that we are blessed uh, when we are merciful. And so God tells us that not only does he want to extend that mercy to us, and he takes delight in it, but to be a godly person, which means is to reflect the heart of God, that also means that you take delight in offering mercy to others. Now, are you talking about that scoundrel of a husband of mine that's been on my back for the last week or whatever it's been, or months that's driving you crazy? Yes, even him. Uh, God wants you to delight in extending mercy to everyone including your spouse, including your parents, even when they failed you in different times, when they come to you and they're seeking mercy on any level, God calls us to extend that mercy to that person as well. And so Jesus here, we come to the foot of Jesus himself, and he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so Jesus says, listen, there's a law of life, a spiritual, moral law of life. He says, if you extend mercy to others, then God will also extend mercy uh, to you. And so we need to practice what God practices. We need to find delight in offering to mer mercy to those who are seeking it from us. Another place that we can find in the same Sermon on the Mount later on in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so here we find Jesus again saying, listen, um, God, please forgive us, even as we also are committed to forgiving our debtors. And of course, to forgive someone is to extend mercy, is it not? And, uh, and so again, God has is, is given us a condition. He's saying, listen, I'll give you mercy. I'll be happy to do that. I'll find pleasure in it. I'll be delighted in it. 
and I'll be happy to extend that mercy to forgiveness. But you also need to remember that God wants you to also extend it to those around you, your fellow human beings. And that means everyone. Well, friends, now we come to uh, Monday's lesson, which is entitled, Create in Me a Clean Heart. Now, uh, as we come to this psalm, it's one of my all-time favorite psalms of all. In fact, when uh, we as pastors were asked, what lesson studies would you be interested in teaching uh, in the book of Psalms for this quarterly, I immediately told our director, uh, Daniel, uh, that, uh, that I want to uh, have lesson number seven. I said, whatever lesson has Psalm 51, that's the one I want. And, uh, and sure enough, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to have that still open and available. And uh, it's been a longtime favorite of mine. It's a, a psalm of repentance. King David is uh, in prayer. It's a prayer, as many of the psalms are. And, uh, and it's a reflection of David's heart and experience as he's finding himself post-adultery, uh, post-murder, uh, uh, David had fallen into some very serious temptations and very serious sins. And, uh, and just like every serious temptation and sin that we fall into, there's always some very real ramifications and uh, negative consequences that come with that. And, uh, and so we read that sad chapter, that tragic chapter in the life of David. And um, as you read that psalm, you find there this beautiful, powerful, prime example of God's mercy being extended to a sincere but very guilty believer and worshiper of God. Even before we begin to look at the psalm itself, though, um, we need to review the context of David being held accountable for his sins. Uh, because even when we go to the actual historical record um, that is the... the um, precursor to God inspiring this prayer and psalm of David to be written. Uh, we find there that uh, we find some of the details on how God went ahead and called David um, accountable. I want to invite you again to open your Bibles with me. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to the second book of Samuel in the Old Testament. And we're going to go to chapter 12. And in chapter 12 and we're going to pick it up with verse 9. Just before that, many of you are familiar with the famous parable that uh, the prophet uh, Nathan had brought before King David. And, uh, and in order to uh, hold King David accountable and publicly and openly show him that he was very guilty and he needs to be able to come to terms with that. Uh, the parable of the rich man and the poor man. They were living in the same city and the rich man had flocks beyond number. And then we also have the poor man who only could afford to buy one little female ewe lamb. And, uh, and he kind of brought it into the house and they cherished it and he fed it from his own food, his own drink, and, 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 and even shared the same sleeping quarters. And, and we find there that the, the sheep is almost like a member of the family, like a dog is to our culture and such. And... Uh, and when the rich man had a stranger, a traveler coming through, he was practicing what the culture insisted on, which is that he would bring that stranger in and he would give him a room to uh, sleep in for the night and offer him a meal. And rather than take one of his own lambs uh, for that meal or sheep, he went and took the sheep of this single sheep of this one poor man and uh, fed it to the stranger. When David heard that, he was enraged and said, well, whoever this man is shall surely die. Who is this man? And Nathan said, you are the man. And so David 
was making his way into a story that was leading to him as the punchline. We pick it up in verse 9 as Nathan is now speaking as a messenger of God. And so this is God speaking directly to David through his messenger. It says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That is, he shall, today we would say, he shall sleep with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And then as we come to verse 13, of course, this is the punchline again. It says, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Uh, here we have uh, King David, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. But at the same time, we find the Lord's immediate response and says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so I want us to pick up in these first verses that we read here from this message of God to David is that David is severely rebuked publicly by God, including some major retributions and punishments for his sins. And we just read them as God has given them to some very powerful, figurative, uh, very frank and open descriptions of some of the horrible experiences that David is going to experience in the future, even with his own, within his own family. And yet, in spite of all this, in spite of the fact that David is also rebuked publicly, that is, in a room that is containing more than just him and Nathan, um, David doesn't rationalize his sin. David is not on record of excusing his sin. David does not deny his sin. Now, this is very important for us because this is a common trap that you and I need to be able to avoid and understand is that there's a default in us that wants to rationalize our sin, that wants to respond by denying that sin or perhaps excusing our sin or to justify that sin. Um, David doesn't do any of these things. He just simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses and he owns his sin. And God, knowing the heart, is on record of immediately applying mercy and completely forgives David for these very, very serious sins. Now, friends, if that's not mercy being applied in a very prime and powerful way, I don't know what is. We haven't even made it to the psalm yet. God knew David was completely repentant, at least by this point on this particular day. In fact, the evidence tells us that he was probably already repentant to a very large degree even before this point. Now, how do we know that? Well, because David doesn't rationalize his sin, he doesn't deny his sin, because he doesn't excuse his sin, he doesn't try to justify his sin, not only on this day, but I am sure and quite certain also on the days beforehand. Why is that? 
Well, because David never repeats that same sin that he first committed that night with Bathsheba. Now, friends, you and I know the tragic story that has taken place, perhaps even within your own family. Perhaps a friend or somebody that you know. I've talked to more than one person as a pastor, as a human being living in a broken world of different people that have fallen into not only finding themselves in bed with somebody that's not their wife or not their husband, but that they do it repeatedly, that they are found maybe six months down the road or sometimes tragically even years down the road before the spouse finally finds out that all of these years that that spouse has been unfaithful to them on a regular consistent basis through that time period. Now friends, I think it's important for us to be able to pick up here that that is not the case with David. David was in a very bad spot, a vulnerable place in his life. He should have been out on the battlefield like he had in the past where God was blessing him and giving him fulfillment and, uh, and, and in a productive way for God's kingdom and for his nation's safety and security and such. But instead, he found himself in a place where he had too much time on his hands. He was out at the wrong place in the wrong time. And he fell sway to a very, very tempting situation. The Bible tells us that David never repeated that. In fact, it tells us that, of course, he didn't handle it properly. Instead of coming before his family, before uh, Bathsheba's family, and confessing his sin and and, uh, expressing how sorrowful he is and such. He tries to cover it up by inviting uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, into his home. Uh, Brings him back from the battlefield and then he says, you know what, before you go back to the battlefield, I want you to go back to your house. And, uh, And of course, he expected his husband to sleep with his wife that night and then get up in the morning and go back to the battlefield. Well, of course, this would make it look both to Uriah as well as the rest of Jerusalem that uh, this, the, the, the baby that uh, David had conceived in the womb of Bathsheba would be indeed none other than uh, Uriah's son. And, uh, and then uh, he was hoping, against hope, that this would cover it all up and both him and Bathsheba could go on their lives with the regret uh, in secret. Of course, many of us know the story. It backfired. Uriah refused to go and sleep with his wife that night. He was way too faithful both to his king, to his God, and to his nation. He says, I'm not going to go and, 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 and wine and dine and sleep with my wife when all the other soldiers are not doing such. Um, and so he slept with the servants that night. David tried again. It still failed. And so David goes to plan B, and the devil's just pulling him deeper and deeper into the pit. And, uh, and David... Uh, writes a letter to Joab out in the battlefield, the, gov- or the general, and says, make sure that you put kind of Uriah out in the front, right near the, the city walls that you're attacking, and then withdraw and leave him isolated so that um, he won't stand a chance and that he'll die on the battlefield. Well, as we've just read, God, uh, you can't play games with God. Um, God said, listen, you may not have picked up the sword and did the deed yourself, but the very conspiracy that is behind it still makes you just as guilty as if you were holding the sword yourself and took the life of Uriah. And so God says, you're guilty of adultery, and he says, you're also guilty of murder. David is not on record of writing messages through his same messengers that went and called for Bathsheba to come to his room that night. He is not on record of, uh, of writing different messages and saying, Bathsheba, I, I can't stop thinking about you. Bathsheba, I can't wait until the next time we can share the same bed together. 
Bathsheba, I can't wait until we walk through the park together. No, we don't find any of those messages. We don't find anything repeated. Why? Because David had found himself repented to some measure even before Nathan had approached him and confronted him publicly. Now, as you read between the lines, and you know the culture and the small setting of Jerusalem at that time, and, 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 and Uriah, who is one of the 30 mighty men of David, by the way. And so Uriah is no some sideline soldier that David never, has never been exposed to. No, Uriah is the cream of the crop, the, 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 the mighty 30, the mighty men, as it's listed in the different... Uh, uh, first and second chronicles and kings and so on, we find there that it lists Uriah as one of those, those cream of the crop, the, the uh, special ops. Uh, he was an outstanding soldier and David knew that and that's why Uriah's house was even be able to find itself uh, housing so close to the very palace of the king of Israel. Because Uriah was one of the most reliable, most capable uh, safeguards for the king's safety. And, uh, and yet we find that David still had uh, betrayed not only his wife, but of course Uriah as well. And I think too often we forget that when we decide to commit adultery with someone that is not our spouse, that not only do we commit adultery against God and against our own spouse, but we also committed a, a, a sin against that spouse's spouse as well. And... Um, Friends, of course, we know that this is not an isolated uh, incident. We know that adultery is one of the most commonly committed uh, sins that we have in society. And so David is not the only one that is vulnerable to that. We need to be careful. Well, we also know that David was completely and sincerely repentant, and that's why God was able to, re to offer his mercy and forgiveness so readily and so immediately, because David, for the remainder of his life, is on record of not only contributing uh, to the welfare of God's kingdom, of, of, of the sanctuary services, the Levites, the musical programs, uh, worship services, and so on. But he also added more inspired psalms to the Bible, including the one that we're looking at here today, Psalm 51. And, uh, and David went on to teach sinners God's ways and appealed to them to follow God. And uh, inspired by God to write in the Psalms that I will set no wicked thing befo before my eyes. So I'll have nothing to do with those who are fallen. David understood the depths and the, and the, the potential of sin within the most, um, most devoted and the most loving and the most righteous among God's people. David understood that. We're going to see that as he expresses it in one of the most deepest and important statements and verses in all the Bible concerning the nature of the human being. Well, that's David. Now, his father-in-law, King Saul, of course, uh, many of us understood, um, was a much different, a much more tragic story than that of Saul, I mean, than that of David. Uh, King Saul was called on the carpet for his sin, and, uh, and his sin was very similar to that of David. Now, Saul never succeeded in his attempt to murder David, even as David did succeed in murdering um, Uriah. But uh, nevertheless, there's some very real parallels there. King David was called on the carpet for a sin of attempted murder, in this case, attempted murder of his son-in-law, David. And uh, Saul also confessed his guilt openly and publicly, even as David had rebuked Saul more than once for his sin against God and against David. But there's a key difference there, isn't there? God did not extend mercy to Saul. Why is that? Well, because Saul never brought himself to tie repentance in 
to his confession. So he is held accountable, he confessed his sins, but he never repented from his sins. Unlike David, who was not on record of repeating either of those grievous sins ever again, we find that Saul almost immediately after he confessed his sin, fell back right into the same pattern and found himself attempting to murder David once again. In fact, Saul went to his grave with the intention of murdering David. Now the question is, were both Saul and David sinners? Well, biblically, the, the answer is yes, and I'll explain further. Um, were both of these men righteous? Well, my first response was no. But now my answer is no and yes. And, uh, and again, let's see if we can further explain it and make some, some sense out of that. I think it brings up a very helpful point that I learned more clearly in recent years. And that is that the Bible writers use the term sinners and righteous people on two different levels, meaning with two different definitions. Um, and so it's the context. We must determine the difference between these two definitions of these two different words according to the context that is being used. And, uh, and so let's see if we can find some examples of these definitions. So let's first look at the term and word sinner as used by the Bible writers. Now the first uh, definition, which is definition A, is that of someone who is, an, who is actively sinning and is an unrepentant sinner. So this is the typical definition that we think of um, when we think of the term sinner. Someone who is actively, unrepentantly sinning in his life or her life even right now. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 31 to, through 32, we find Jesus is in a room that is full of tax collectors, that is full of sinners, as one of the Pharisees or rabbis or both was pointing out to Jesus. And they say, why is it that you eat and drink with, with tax collectors and sinners? And uh, don't you know that to be holy is to be separate from sinners? And Jesus was quite often found himself at social circles and accepting social uh, invitations to those who were not walking with God and not rock, walking in a, any kind of holiness on any measure. And, um, and so Jesus responds and says, you know, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but the sick. He says, I have not, called to, I have not come to call right, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, uh, and so, of course, Jesus here is talking about the same definition that we are on the first definition here today. Second one is uh, a definition of sinner, is someone who is a repentant, inactive sinner who still battles with her, her, his or her sinful nature while consistently asking for God uh, or asking God for help. And uh, again, we can find that the Apostle Paul, well into his ministry, well into his Christian conversion experience, as recorded in chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, tells us indeed that uh, this is a worthy this is a worthwhile saying. This is a, um, an ex a worthwhile saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so here we have Paul again, years into his ministry. He's an apostle of God. He's a prophet. He's a Bible writer, and yet he's saying, present tense, I am also a sinner. Now we don't want to put Paul in the same definition and category as definition and category. Letter A, number one, 
Uh, why is that? Because Paul was not an unrepentant, active sinner. He didn't get up in the morning and say, you know what, I know that God says I shouldn't lie, but I'm just going to go ahead and lie whenever I want to today. He didn't get up in the morning and say, you know, I know God says I shouldn't steal, but you know what, His grace is sufficient, and therefore I'm just going to go ahead and steal whenever the opportunity arises. No. Paul was a repentant, inactive sinner. Now, did he still have a sinful nature? Yes. Were there things that were desirable to him, that were attractive to him, that were sinful? Yes. And that's why Paul is saying, listen, even though I'm not an active sinner, I am a struggling, struggling Christian. And I am a person that understands, even as King David learned the hard way, that if I am not careful, if I do not take the precautions, I can find myself and I have the capability within myself, even each and every one of us has that capability, to find ourselves committing adultery, committing murder, and committing some of these most grievous and serious of sins. So I hope that helps a little bit in regards to the Bible's definition of sinner. And so those are the two different, diff different definitions. Again, when we come to the uh, scene in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus is saying that he came to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance, he's talking about active sinners and those who are actively following God as a righteous person. And this brings up the other definition, and that is in regards to a righteous person. And, uh, and so again, we find here that there's two definitions of a righteous person depending on the context in the Bible. The first one is self-righteous, a self-righteous person. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, it says, For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, not having submitted to the righteousness of God. And, uh, and so Paul here in this particular chapter, in chapter 9, 10, 11, he's specifically talking about his Jewish countrymen, the Israelites that were living in the nation in which Paul was a part of. And, uh, and Paul... Uh, is writing this burden and this, this reality that not only has he observed since he's become a Christian, that, but that Paul is on record of making very clear that he used to be one of them. He used to be a Jewish person that was guilty of seeking to establish his own righteousness rather than the righteousness that can only come from God. And so this is an important gospel Bible truth, is it not? In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in us both to will, that is to motivate us to do what's right, and to do His good pleasure. And so friends, we cannot do it on our own. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Word exposing ourselves to righteousness. Um, this is why it's so important for us to continue to look to God for help and, um, and to be able to write His law upon our hearts to walk with God in a very real way. By the way, it's interesting that many unbelievers like to accuse Christians of being self-righteous. Have you ever heard of that? Perhaps you've even experienced it yourself. You've said uh, you're a Christian, you have some friends, family members, and so on. It's, oh, one of those self-righteous Christians, one of those self-righteous religious people. Aren't we just holier than thou and such? And, um, and I have to confess there, I've met more than one Christian who is self-righteous. Um, they, are, they are out there. There's more than a few of them. And, uh, and so it's not like they don't exist. But I would like to think that that doesn't include you and I. 
that we're in the same camp as David is. That we're not living a perfect life. We, we, we're still struggling. We're battling. We're fighting the good fight, but, um, but we certainly don't look to ourselves as being righteous in of ourselves. And every righteous act, every righteous attitude, every righteous decision that we make doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the God that's within us. And, uh, and that's so important for us to understand. It's also been my observation that uh, most unbelievers are self-righteous themselves. And so the very ones that accuse Christians and religious people of being self-righteous, I find that I've met way more self-righteous unbelievers than I have met self-righteous believers or Christians, professed Christians. I've knocked at the door of many people and doing Bible work in years past and and, and as I've talked to different individuals about religious topics and the gospel and so on, and uh, over and over I hear it like a broken record. You know, uh, you know I'm a good person. Uh, my righteousness is sufficient. And therefore I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't lean on God. I don't walk with Him. And, uh, and I don't go to church. Um, and so uh, they, they use that as their excuse. Uh, what they don't realize is that they're proclaiming themselves to be self-righteous. They don't understand the gospel and they don't understand how desperately they need a savior. Second definition is of a righteous person is the one that we want to be applying to ourselves and that is a repentant, spirit-filled uh, person that is offering consistent and willing obedience uh, before the Lord. And so we want to make sure that uh, we are this type of righteous person. Now, by the way, on a side note, I think it's important for us to understand that to be this type of righteous person means, uh, to, to one of the confirmations of that is that you would never refer to yourself as a righteous person. But you'd always refer to yourself as, as uh, the Apostle Paul did. I am the least among the saints. I'm an apostle, but I am not worthy to be an apostle, as Paul said. Um, this is a worthy saying and worthy of all. This is an acceptable saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners whom I am chief. And so God calls us to be a righteous person. This is the second definition. It's a repentant, spirit-filled, offering consistent, willing obedience. James chapter 5 and verse 16 is a prime example of dozens throughout the scriptures and uh, referring to human beings as a righteous person. And he says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, uh, and so uh, God is speaking about Elijah in this context as well as every other sincere, believing, obedient Christian that we can find in this planet. And, uh, and again, friends, I want to encourage you that you will pray that God will help you to be one of those if you're not convinced you are already. Now, sometimes we get a little bit nervous about this definition, this last definition. We get nervous about the Bible and Jesus talking about some of us being righteous people, a righteous man, a righteous woman. Um, and again, I get nervous when I hear Christians referring to themselves. Um, but when we're referring to others or the possibility of you or I being a righteous person, uh, this is very biblical. Um, sometimes we get nervous, I, f I think, more than anything is because as sincere, as devoted as you and I are, we know that we come up short. We know that there are times when we're found guilty on different levels. We know that we have weaknesses. We know that there's a battle. And sometimes we don't always win that battle on different levels. So long as we are truly repentant and we are offering our willing obedience, so we want to underlined willing obedience, asking for the Holy Spirit's presence, asking for the Holy Spirit's help, 
God counts us perfectly righteous in light of Jesus and his perfect life, his perfect death and substitute of yours, and his perfect high priesthood and intercession in heaven for you and me. The Bible calls this his imputed righteousness. This is wrapped up in justification uh, that God offers to us. That's the first experience that we have in Christ. When we come to Christ, we confess our sins, we repent of our sins, and we give him our willing obedience, friends. It is then that God imputes to us that perfect life, death, resurrection, and priesthood of Jesus in your place. And he imputes that perfect life and righteousness into your life. Now that's different than being imparted, which the Bible also speaks of. But in Romans chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8, which, by the way, quotes King David. And and David is writing under inspiration in Psalm 32. And Paul there is inspired to quote and point to those words of David himself that talks about the blessings of the man whose whose righteousness is, is imputed to him from God and not the works of that man himself, not the works of that woman herself. All right, friends, time is ticking along very quickly. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at Psalm, well, not the rest, I'm hoping to look also at Psalm 103, but we'll see how time goes. Psalm 51, and uh, and we're going to, as we visit this particular psalm, uh, one of the key reasons I love this song is that there's four main ingredients in finding an eternal saving relationship with God. Four main ingredients. Let's see if we can find all four as we go through these verses here today. All right, so we're in Psalm 51, and we're going to look at verses 3, or 1 through um, 5 to start off. Okay, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. So there's that key word right off the bat. David is appealing to the mercy of God. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. There's that key word again. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then in verse five, he goes on and this is no small verse. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And uh, and so here we have David, and he's uh, uh, found with ingredient number one in finding an eternal safe relationship with God. And this is it. Owning and confessing our sins and our sinfulness. Did you find that in those verses, friends? Sure. Verse 5, verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions. That's David taking ownership of his sin, isn't he? And my sin is always before me. And then in verse 5, he goes on and says, not only am I guilty, not only do I have to own it and confess it before you, but I also recognize deeper than I'm sure he had ever realized before the potential for evil that each and every one of us have. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. From my birth, in fact, we can even go before the time when I was brought forth. In sin did my mother conceive me. David understood that the world is broken largely and most importantly because Adam and Eve had broken the nature in which God first had created him with. And, um, 
And so he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Friends, we are all born broken. We are all born with a default towards sin. And that's why temptation is something that God warns us over and over. David, uh, Jesus had warned his first followers in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's arrested. He says, watch and pray. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he says. He says, listen, there's a part of you that is bent towards sin, that is bent towards evil, bent towards the pleasures of sin. And so he says, make sure you watch and you pray and you understand that every waking moment is a battle with yourself, with your nature, because you inherited not only from your mother, but your mother got it from her mother and her mother got it from her mother. And it goes all the way back to Eve and to Adam. And, uh, and so God tells us, be careful. And David is bringing forth that important truth. Now, some have come to reinterpret this, by the way, in a, in a different way that t- totally takes it out of context. And they say, well, this is talking about the conception of David in the fact that his mother was involved, obviously involved in some kind of adulterous affair or fornication before she was married. And therefore, he was conceived in her sin, her sinful actions in that conception. Friends, I don't know where we get that from. I'm guessing that's because individuals are trying to skirt this very important reality and truth that God is trying to communicate to you and I. Uh, To take that in that kind of interpretation is to deny the rest of the context because the context speaks nothing about David's family life, his history, his marriage, his mother. Um, It's all about David and his sin and his own adultery. And, uh, and not only that, but when you look at the historical records, there's all kinds of evidences of David's childhood all the way through to his death in the Bible. And not once does it speak about his mother being involved in any kind of illicit relationship. And so I don't know where we get that from, but friends, don't fall for it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says the same thing, that we are all children of wrath. Why? Because we have a sinful nature. And we find that in several other places in the Bible, but this is certainly one of the clearest among that of Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, and verse uh, 3. All right, so that's ingredient number one, owning and confessing our sin and sinfulness. Let's see if we can find ingredient number two. We continue on with verse 6. In verse 6 it says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. So God is pointing us to the fact that God wants to write his law on our hearts, not just on the tablets on our wall or in our minds, in our intellect. He wants to write it in the heart of our will. Behold, in Psalm 119, verse 11, David again, who penned that psalm also, says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is probably written again after he had fallen into these serious sins. And he wrote God's word in his heart deeper than ever before. Verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Now it's important for us to understand that in verse 8 when he says, The bones that you have broken. David didn't have literal broken bones, but as the Bible writers so often did, especially in the Psalms, which are songs, Uh, They used all kinds of different figurative, metaphorical, and and, uh, different literary tools, poetic tools, and so on. And so uh, this is just a powerful figurative way of saying, you've broke my spirit, you know, and I'm just broken, completely busted up, and I can only be fixed by you, O Lord. And how does he do that? 
He does it by first owning and confessing his sins and sinfulness. And number two, as he has just done, he cries out to God in confession and asks for forgiveness according to the mercy of God. This is called justification. And that's exactly what God offered to David and what he continues to offer to you as well as, uh, as to me as well. And uh, only confessing our sins and sinfulness. And again, in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Erase it all, Father. Please forgive me according to your mercy. And again, God is always on record and delights in offering that when we sincerely bring it before God. All right, so let's, uh, let's go on and see if we can find ingredient number, um, if we can find ingredient number three. And, uh, and so we pick it up with verse um, 10. And so in verse 10 it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And so what is David doing here now with ingredient number three? Well, he's asking for a new heart. He's asking for a regeneration in his life. He's asking, please take that sinful part of me and replace it with the righteousness that can only come from your presence, from the Holy Spirit in my heart and my mind. And this also reveals to us that David understood how essential it was, not only as a New Testament Christian, but also as an Old Testament believer, to be born again, as, Dave, as Jesus taught it to Nicodemus in the night during his earthly ministry. And, um, and so David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The thir third of the four main ingredients is to ask for a new heart, to become born again. This is the sanctifying or sanctification experience that God offers to us. First, he imputes his righteousness, and he remains that. That remains as a believer for the rest of our life, justification. But then he also imparts his righteousness to us as well. And so friends, allow the Holy Spirit to impart his righteousness that you might not seek your own righteousness, which the nation of Israel was guilty of, David, or Paul was guilty of in his previous life, but rather seek the righteousness of Christ that can only come from him and his presence in your heart. And that's why David cries out because he knew, he knew that without the presence of the Holy Spirit within his mind, within his heart, he was lost, not only for eternity, on a legal basis, but he was lost as far as living that righteous, holy, and happy life that God wants for each and every one of us. All right, and then we go to, um, to see if we can find that fourth ingredient before we run out of time. Verse 12, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 13 is the key here. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And, uh, and so God wants us to be able to uh, understand that uh, once we are saved, once we own and confess our sins and sinfulness, once we come to confess and ask forgiveness of our sins, once we come to him and ask for his presence that we might be born again and live by his righteousness in our hearts, then we go out and we serve. Jesus says that, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. And uh, later on, that same night when he, when he had uh, spoken those words, he also said that uh, the, the disciple or the student is not better than the teacher, or the servant better than the master. 
Jesus says, it's your turn to serve now as well. And the disciples had learned that to a large degree already by the time Jesus said that, but they were to learn it more and more deeper as they went along. And so David here is saying, I will go and I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David, for the rest of his days, was involved in helping others to know the gospel, to teach them the word of God and the commandments of God and the blessings of holiness, but also the blessings of God's mercy, his forgiveness, his, his presence and, and, and Holy Spirit and righteousness in the heart of the believer. He was involved in evangelism and personal witnessing. He was promoting that through his nation and through his life for the rest of his life. And so there we have it, friends. The four main ingredients to finding a saving, personal, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Only confessing our sins and sinfulness. Asking God to be forgiven. Ask for a new heart to be born again. And service through evangelism and through witnessing. Well, friends, as we close, uh, I want to take us to 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 8 because many years after this, these scenes that we've been studying here and concerned to David's life, uh, we find that God testifies of his view of David in spite of David's shortcomings and in spite of some of the serious sins now that were on his personal record. Um, it kind of stymied me. I, I have to confess when I first read 1 Kings 14 many years ago, but the Lord has helped me to sort that out since. Um, in verse 8 it says, And uh, tore the kingdom away from the house of David. Now, God here is, is uh, the, the, the quote here is speaking to, um, to Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern nation of Israel that had been separated through a civil war of the southern nation of Israel and Judah. And God is rebuking the king Jeroboam for all of his sins and his sinful leadership. And he says, you know, I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. And uh, the next chapter, he says the same thing in some different words. And so twice in those two chapters in a row, God is on record of saying, listen, when it comes to my servant David, which, by the way, every king after David was always compared to David, whether he measured up to David, whether he fell far short, or whether he exceeded David. Um, David was the measuring stick for the rest of Israel's history. And, uh, and so just like you and my, I, David did not live a perfectly righteous life every single moment. He came up short at times, but he always confessed. He always asked for forgiveness and he always asked God to help him repent and do what is right from that point forward. And, uh, and so that's why God, through his imputed righteousness, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, as David himself penned in Psalm 32, that the man that is, has experiences the imputed righteousness of God, separate from that of his own works, is the most blessed of men. And David understood that. And that's why God many years later could look back on David's life and say, David, as far as I'm concerned, he has never sinned. Well, we're going to skip to Thursday for our last moments here together. Uh, make sure that you read the other Psalms if you haven't uh, that are found in the quarterly. Psalm 136 and uh, not 136, but uh, 113 among others. Um, Thursday, it says, forget not all his benefits and we look at Psalm 103 which is the second deepest psalm that we find in this week's uh, lesson study. Um, 
Psalm 103 verse 8 is uh, the most important that we can uh, find there. And that is that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in mercy. Uh, God delights in extending mercy to you and I. And uh, the psalmist understood it as he wrote 103. All the Bible writers understood the character of God in, the, in this regard, starting from Moses onwards. Now, it's also important to note in the same song that uh, God's saving grace is only available to those who sincerely fear him and are faithful to his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And so I'd like to close our lesson here today with Psalm 103, verses 11, 17, and 18. It says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments, and to what? And to do them, friends. And so don't fall for the false teaching and false gospel that tells us that God's mercy is available to even when we don't confess or at minimum we don't um, repent of our sins. Uh, no, God is only involved in giving mercy to those who truly own their sins, their sinfulness, confess it, and repent and give a willing obedience to God, asking for his help every day. God bless you, friends. It's so good to be able to study with you as we continue to make our way through one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Psalms. And uh, look forward to seeing you as we study again next week. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.